So if you have your Bibles, um, flip to 1 Samuel, um, and we're going to be in chapter 13. We're going to be in chapter 13. I want to say something before we start, and I just want to let you guys know I love worshiping with you guys. That sounds weird, but just like sitting down with you guys and just worshiping, probably the highlight of my week. So I just want to say, appreciate y'all being here. I appreciate y'all being here. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13. But before we hop into our scripture for tonight, I want to ask you rhetorical questions, so don't scream out, but how do you react to pressure? Just want you to think about it. How do you react to pressure? How do you react to being in a panic? How do you react to anxiety? I want you to think about those things as we go through tonight's message, because I think that is mainly what tonight's about, right? We're going we're gonna to dive into 1 Samuel chapter 13, and what we're going to see is we're going to see Saul under immense pressure, He's under a bunch of pressure. He's under a bunch of, of anxiety. He's, he's being forced to perform, right? What we're going to see in the first verse is Saul's been king for a couple years now, and he's about to hop into his second war. Three years he's going to hop into his second war, and he has all this pressure on him. And just to connect with you guys, I'm going to share with you a funny story about me. I don't react to pressure very well. Um, I remember one day um, I was with my friends and something that we used to do all the time is we used to go airsofting. We'd go airsofting all the time. And if you don't know what that is, basically it is where manly men and manly women, they get together and they grab these toy guns and it's 12 v 12 or 10 v 10, however many people you want. And they go against each other and they battle each other. And they shoot each other with these little plastic BBs. Do not get yourself wrong. They hurt very badly. So you wear two or three jackets. And um, the place where we were doing this at, it wasn't an abandoned public. So it was actually really cool. So basically, this airsoft company buys out certain places that are abandoned, and they fix them up just to be an arena. So they bought out this Publix, and I remember it was me and my three best friends. And we were going against this team of 10. It was a 4v10. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have let it happen, right? And as if that wasn't smart enough, we chose to split up. Um, not twos and twos, but threes and ones, because we're smart. And um, I was, of course, the one person. So we start going, and um, all my friends are running through the deli section of the Publix. It was really cool. And I'm scouting through the aisles. I'm scared to death. Um, I'm the only one there, and I have all this pressure on me to perform, right? They put me out there. I don't know what they thought about me. Maybe I'm the best one, quote, unquote. I don't know. But I'm going through these aisles, and I have all this pressure on me. And I hear... Someone just scream. I just hear someone blood-curdling scream, and I know my best friend screamed, so I knew he was gone, right? But they're all together, so all three of them, boom, gone. So now it's a 1v10. And I'm just, I'm scared. I'm scared, right? So I, under pressure, under anxiety, under panic, I make probably the worst decision you can make, and I run into a freezer. So the cool thing about these freezers were, though, is they took all the shelves out, so you could just Beamlined down all of the all, all of the all of the like freezers in the aisles. It was actually really cool. But what I didn't realize is I trapped myself. So now I'm not only in a freezer. I'm stuck in a freezer with glass doors where everyone can see me. Yes, genius, right? So long story short, they all come in at the same time and they destroy me and I get lit up and all my friends laugh at me. But what we see 
is under pressure, under anxiety, under panic, we sometimes make questionable decisions. We sometimes make decisions that if we were to step back and think about them a little bit more, we probably wouldn't make. Right? And what we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is Saul is going to make a questionable decision. And what we're going to do is we're going to dissect his decision. We're going to dissect the whole chapter. And we're going to see what it means to seek God's understanding and God's wisdom instead of leaning on our own in time of panic and in time of need. So before we hop into our message, there's a lot of context we need to give. We skipped four chapters, right? We were in chapter 8 last week where Mike taught in chapter 8. And now we're in chapter 13, and you're probably like, what in the world happened in those four connecting chapters? I will fill you in super quickly. Chapter 9, Saul gets anointed as king. So now Saul's king. Not only is Saul king, Saul is the king that Israel wanted. He was super tall. He was better than everybody else. You can see that in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says, um, it says um, he was a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul. So, first of all, he had a really cool dad, right? So, we see he was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So, Saul's exactly what they wanted. So, chapter 9, Saul gets anointed as king. Chapter 10, um, or chapter 11, actually, we're going to skip. Chapter 11, Saul demonstrates his leadership in his first ever battle against the Ammonites. They win. They win, right? They're victorious. <laughs> Phew, his first test, he passed. Chapter 12, Samuel delivers a farewell speech where he is instructing the Israelites to remain obedient and faithful in times of need and in times of war. So now we're going to get to chapter 13. Saul is king. Saul has a son. His name is Jonathan. And Saul and Jonathan are getting ready for their first battle. So before we hop into today's scripture, let's pray. Father God, I'd just like to Thank you for this day, God. I'd just like to thank you for what this is, God. It's just a gathering of believers where we're able to just dive deep into what your word has for us. God, I just pray that as we read, Father, that you would just instruct me, Father, and give me the words to say, and let me just stand behind you and have you be seen instead of me, Father. God, I just pray that we get out of your word what we need to get out of it tonight, and that we walk away better understanding what it means to run to you in times of need instead of leaning on our own understanding. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Chapter 13, verse 1. We're going through all 23 verses. Let's strap in. We're just going to read the first seven verses first. This is, I, I titled the first seven verses, Tension Builds. Tension Builds. We're going to see it get real in this first seven verses. All right, verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his own tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the uh, that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal, and the Philistines mustered up to fight with Israel. They brought thirty thousand chariots, six thousand horsemen, 
in troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Things are getting real. Saul and his, and his, and his little man, Jonathan, they're getting ready for battle. He takes 2,000 people. So Saul has 2,000 troops with him. They're all armed. They're all ready. He gives 1,000 to his son, Jonathan. They're all armed. They're all ready. Saul already has pressure on him to perform, right? If we look at the first verse, um, it says in verse 1 that Saul had been king for a couple years. It says he lived for one year and then became king. This does not mean that Saul was one years old. What this means is it's been one year since Saul has been anointed king by Samuel. Now he is king, and he's been king for two years. He's been king for two years. He has pressure on him to perform as a new king. He sends a thousand with his son, two thousand with him, and Jonathan actually goes out and defeats a garrison of the Philistines. A garrison is a group of people that usually guard a base or a certain area. So Jonathan goes out, destroys them, comes back, and Saul has even more pressure on him to perform because look what his son did. They're probably like, Saul, what are you doing? Your son's doing better than you are. So Jonathan goes out, defeats him, comes back. Saul blows the trumpet, says, let the Hebrews hear. And everyone says, thanks be to Saul. But what did Saul do? Saul didn't, Saul didn't beat anybody. His son did. Now, we're not going to hop into that because there is a lot that we can get out of that, right? Like, are you okay being obedient even when other people get the recognition? Are you okay being this? But for the sake of time and for the sake of our main point, we're going to keep moving. So we see that Saul gets the, the, the praise for it. But then we see this in verse 5. The Philistines, as y'all say, bow up. They basically say, all right, you're going to beat us. Look what we have. They show this picture of force. They show this picture of strength, right? Let's read it in verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Wow. 30,000 chariots. I mean, 30,000 chariots. You would probably think that there's two people per chariot. That's 60,000 people there. Then you have the 6,000 people on horses, 66,000. And then you have to count the people that are just regular troops that, they, that the Bible says numbered like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They are severely outnumbered. Just like I was in Airsoft, right? 1v10. Nah, Saul is going into a 3,000 v 66 plus thousand people. It does not look good for Saul. But then... It even builds even more, right? We see that the, that the show of strength by the Philistines works, right? You go to verse 6. What do the people of Israel do? They hide. I, I would hide too. That's what I did in my story. I hid. I ran into the freezer, right? They basically do the brock. They run into the freezer. We see, the, we see in verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. They fled. So now, Saul is severely outnumbered, but he is severely outnumbered, and in the, in, in the little bit of people that he has are all scared. A scared soldier who isn't going to go out and fight 
Might as well not have that soldier, right? He's sitting in a cistern. He's sitting in a cave. He's scared, right? So not only is he severely outnumbered, but he doesn't have the backing from his people anymore, right? So we continue on. We continue on. In verse 6, I think there's actually something very important. What do the people of Israel choose to do? They choose to hide. Follow me. Flip your Bibles back to chapter 10. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, Saul is anointed king. And what we're going to see in verses, um, I think, 21, or I think it's 7 and 8. Um, no, chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. So sorry. It says, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, who were they seeking? They're seeking Saul. Saul just been anointed king. Where's he at? They're looking for him. But when they sought him, they could not, he could not be found. Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. The people of Israel have become just like their leader. And that's our first point. If you want to become better at, at, at making the right decisions under pressure, Surround yourself with fellow Christians who are also good at it. Look up to people that are also good at it. You will often become and handle yourself under pressure just like the people that you look up to. Right? We see this. Why is it significant that the people of Israel hid? It's because you will often become like the ones you allow to lead you. But also, you will often handle pressure a lot like those you look up to. So surround yourself with people who, when pressure comes, they don't run and hide, but they seek the Lord. Then in verse 7, the pressure builds more. Verse 7. Let's go back to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Verse 7. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul, still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now more of his people leave. More of his people leave. And Saul's sitting back. Why? Why is Saul sitting there? Why isn't Saul moving? He's supposed to be the king. What is he doing? He should be with his people. He should be fighting. He should be moving forward. You just saw what the Philistines had. Make a move. Do something. Why is he sitting there? The answer is found in uh, verse 8 of chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, go to chapter 10, verse 8. We are going to see why Saul is sitting there, why Saul isn't moving. It says, I'm going to read actually starting in verse 7. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. Verse 8, then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you. Who is I? Samuel. Samuel says, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So not only is Saul have all this pressure on him, he has a command from Samuel directed by God to sit and wait. Mm -mm. If, I'm, if I'm Saul, that's the last thing I want to do. Right? Think about it. Not only is all this pressure on Saul, but in the midst of all this pressure, his command given to him by Samuel from God is to sit and do nothing. Sit and wait. And he knew that every day he waited, 
He was, he was losing time to prepare. He was, the Philistines, they were, they were game planning. They were sharpening their tools. They were getting ready to just come down and destroy them all. And every single day, he's getting more worried and more worried and more worried. Right? So all this pressure, all this anxiety, all this, all this, all this pressure is on Saul. And he's, 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 he's wrestling within himself. Right? Let's go to verse 8. We're now going to transition over into Saul's decision. We see in verse 1 through 7, tension builds. Tension gets tough. Tension gets hard. Saul is freaking out, as all of us probably would. And now in verse 8, or now in verse, I think, 8 through 14, we're going to see what Saul chooses to do. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me in the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that there was people scattering from me, and the people did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered up in Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, um, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he has commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What do we see? He doesn't wait. Saul doesn't wait. I think the first thing before we rant on Saul is he gets to the seventh day. No way. Oh, it's Amber Alert. I thought that was a fire alarm. Tornado warning. We'll be fine. We'll read the... All right. Shh. Let's stay. Let's stay. Let's stay here. Silence your phones. Nothing better to do in a tornado than read the Bible. All right. Shh, shh. Yeah. Trust God. I'm just kidding. All right, ready? Let's keep going. All right. Shh, shh, shh. So, he gets to the seventh day. That is pretty impressive. Before we ran on Saul, he waited seven days. I mean, man, that's tough. You see, all these things just happened. 66,000 plus troops, they're now coming down to destroy you, and he waits seven days. That's pretty crazy. But we see he makes a poor choice under pressure. What does verse 9 say? So Saul said, bring me the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Saul folds. Saul chooses to offer the burnt offering even though God told him not to. Why is it a problem that Saul would offer a burnt offering? Why is it a problem that Saul would offer a burnt offering? What's up, Jacob? That's not what God says to, to, to do. First of all, correct. Second of all, he's not a priest. He can't. He's not supposed to. He's the king. He's not the priest. Who was the priest? Samuel. So Samuel was said, I will come and I will show you what to do. But he didn't wait First of all, he went against the Lord, but second of all, he did what he wasn't allowed to do. Verse 9 is our decision. But I think even more deeply into this, the problem that Saul had is in times of pressure, 
in times of panic, in times of anxiety, he chose to lean on his own understanding instead of seeking God. That's the point. When things get tough, how often do you pray? When things get hard, and you are, as the Bible describes, hard-pressed, you're struggling, how often do you pray? How often do you run to your word? How often do you seek God before you try to make a worldly, earthly decision on your own wisdom, based on your own understanding? That is the problem Saul had. Saul chose to, in the midst of pressure, lean on his own understanding instead of following the commands of God. Where else do we see in Scripture where God tells us not to lean on our own understanding? Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. What does this word trust mean? This word trust is actually translated to the word to lie helpless face down. It's a picture of a servant waiting for his master's command in readiness to obey. It says, trust the Lord. But then when we dive deeper, trusting the Lord looks like us laying face down in front of him, saying, I trust you completely. Not just trusting him, but entrusting him with everything we have with our lives, with our actions, with our words, with our thoughts. Guys, we need to lie down in front of God in prayer, in reading our word when things get tough, not try to make decisions on our own. And it might seem weird. It might seem weird. No, no, I have to make this decision. You don't know what I'm going through, right? In, 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 I think the Bible expected that, right? What do we see? Let's go. Let's go to verse, I think, verse... 13. And Samuel said to Saul, or I think verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I was, uh, when, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered up at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. What does Saul do? He offers excuses. He says, well, well, I can't just sit and wait. Look at all that's happening, Samuel. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. I had to make a decision. I couldn't just lie helpless. I couldn't just sit here and trust the Lord. I had to do something. But I want you to know, the smartest thing you could ever do is stop, sit, and seek the Lord. It's the smartest thing you could ever do. Before it's game planning for war, before it's trying to do this or trying to that, laying helpless face down, trusting the Lord is the most important thing you can do but I don't expect you to just do this blindly. I don't want to just get up here and say, trust God. That's tough. If I just get up here and say, trust God, you'd probably be like, why? Right? In Proverbs 3, 5, just to give you some context, what, what, do, we, what do we see? Got to get his name right. Got to get his name right. Um, Solomon. Solomon in Proverbs is actually talking to his son here. He's urging his son to trust God. And the reason he's doing this, the reason Solomon is doing this, is because Solomon has found God worth trusting. So he's saying, trust God, trust God, trust God. And I want you to know, you see all these volunteers in this room? That's what they're here for. If you ever think, why should I trust God? Ask them. That's why they come every week. 
because they found God so worth trusting that they want to explain to you guys why he's worth trusting. Solomon didn't even expect his son to blindly trust God. He tried to show it to him. Here, God is worth trusting because he's done this, 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 and that. And I'm here, and the volunteers are here to tell you God is worth trusting, and I can show you in the way that he's changed my life. And I'm convinced that many people don't trust in God because Christians don't live like he deserves our trust. If you want people to trust God, you don't have to go around with a microphone saying to trust him. You should just live trusting him. When things go wrong at school, let's say you're at school and a tornado warning comes on, or people are, um, or, or like, let's say they go on lockdown. Is the first thing you do to make a joke about it, or is the first thing you do to say, hey, I'm going to pray? That'd be a great way to set an example of trusting in God, right? Praying in the midst of struggles, right? So that's what we see. We see he offers excuses. And then we see in, we see in verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And, and Saul said, when I, and he gives all the excuses. And then we go down to verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. The next point, it is always foolish to not trust God. It is never foolish to do so. It is never foolish to trust God. I don't care if you have 66 plus thousand soldiers up on a hill ready to come down on you, sitting, lying face down in front of God, reading and praying and seeking his guidance is never dumb. It's never foolish. But to do anything opposite always is. So we see another switch. We see Samuel call him out. Samuel calls him out. He goes, yo, that's foolish. You can't do that. First of all, because he sinned against what God commanded him to do. But second of all, he did what he couldn't do because he, was, he wasn't a priest. All right, now we keep going. Verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. What does that mean? Your kingdom shall not continue. Saul is the king. And as the king, if he were to pass away or he were to not be king anymore, what would usually happen is the kingship would be passed down to his son. Right? But what do we see is not going to happen? He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people. He has, Samuel has basically told Saul, you, the king, your kingship is not going to remain with your family line anymore. And that's another point. Do not think you can sin and it not affect what God has entrusted you with. I cannot get up on the stage and speak to you guys in a, in a, in a way where God is going to use me if I'm just living a life of sinless, uh, sinfulness. It doesn't work that way. The things that God entrusts you with he entrusts you with, and what you should do is live a life free of sin as, 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 as much as you can. We see that sin takes away his kingship. It takes it away from him. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. 3,000 men, now 600. They are wiped out, right? Let's keep reading. 
And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were with him present with them, they stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out in companies. One company turned toward Ophrah and the other land to Shul. And another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. The Philistines had so many people, they did not just need to go in and wipe them all out. They sent them in little, little troops. They sent them out in little squadrons. They said, you know what? We're going to send a little bit of people out here now. They're going to work you over there. We're going to send a little people over here. They're going to do that. And they're, they're just slowly picking them off. But the Philistines were smart about this. Verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. The Philistines took out all their blacksmiths. That's a problem. You're in a war and you have no way to make weapons. That stinks. Right? Let's keep reading took out all their blacksmiths. The Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords and spears. So they knew this. They go, if we take out the, we take out the blacksmith, they ain't going to have no weapons. 600 men with weapons is kind of scary. 600 men with their fists ain't scary at all. Verse 20. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or his sickle. Not only if you take out the blacksmiths, you take away their weapons, you also take their farming equipment away. Now they can't eat. Now they can't eat. But the only way they can eat is if they go to the Philistines to get them sharpened. That is humbling. Now they got to go to the people who are in, they are in war with to get their things sharpened. What do the Philistines do? Verse 21. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening his axes and for setting the goads. The Philistines raise the prices. They say, if you're going to come to us to get your farming tool and equipment sharpened, we're going to raise the price on y'all. They monopolized basically all farming equipment and everything like that. Verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there were neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his, uh, um, Jonathan, his son, had them. So only Saul and Jonathan had weapons. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass of Michmash. So what do we see? We see in the first, that is insane. It is storming, storming outside. Verse 1 through 7 you guys listen up. Verse 1 through 7, tension builds. The pressure gets hard on Saul. Just like me and when I was doing airsoft. It gets tough. I see all my guys get wiped out. Now I'm the only one 1v10. I'm like, oh, this stinks. Right? Everything gets wiped out. All the pressure is on Saul. Then while all the pressure is on Saul, he makes a questionable decision. What is that questionable decision? That decision is to seek his own understanding instead of simply trusting God. Then what do we see? In verses 4, or any of these things to give you temporary happiness, you have to answer this question. What are you going to do for your sin? And the best thing for you to do is seek God. Seeking God and following his commands. The pressure of your sin is so easily lifted when you run to God trusting him. Face down and surrender. The rest of that verse, Romans 6.23 says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are not a Christian in this room, trust God. Run to him. Lie face down. He's worthy of it, I promise. But if you are in this room and you are a Christian, make sure your life 
is lived in such a way that when people look at you, they say, whoa, that guy he trusts is worth trusting. I'm afraid that one day I'm gonna get to heaven. There's gonna be this, these, these, just, just, this amount I can just think back to the, the, the tens of twenties of people that don't think God's worth trusting because I didn't live in a way that reflected him as he was worth trusting. I'm afraid of that. So I beg you guys tonight, if you are a Christian in this room, live as if God is worth trusting. We see that the sin that Saul did caused him to lose his kingship, but then also he left the people of Israel hopeless. Left the people of Israel hopeless. They had nothing to hope in. What are they going to do? Their leader isn't trusting God. And what do we see? They weren't either. They were hiding. They were running. They weren't seeking God. Guys, and the, the whole point today, and I don't know how much time I have left because it's stuck at 38 minutes. So I don't know. Is it 742? Well, it is 742. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, we're going to have a closing song. You know, we're going to have a good amount of time in groups to talk about what it means to live a life trusting God. Boom, that's probably important. But, but guys, I want you guys to, I want you guys to know, I want you guys to know this. Seriously, God is worth trusting. No matter what situation you're in, no matter how bad the odds look, no matter if it's 600 v 66,000 plus, God is worth trusting because of who he is. What we see in chapter 14, I don't know if Mike's going to preach on it, but I'm going to spoil it a little bit. Jonathan goes, you know what, Saul, if you're not going to fight him, I'm going to fight him. He takes like 20 people. He goes, he fights this 66,000 people. He kills about like 100 of them. And then God confuses the Philistine army and they start killing each other. They end up beating them. When all else fails, when all the odds look like they're not going to pull this one out, God pulls through. Guys, trust God because he's worth trusting.